Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Six p.m. Book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com/slash-with-amex. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform. both of them. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for remembering my name this time. Yeah, for once. <laughs> Well, I do my best. Nice Josh to Barrow see you guys. Here. Yeah, it's uh, it's always a party in here. You know, actually, I forgot. I when I was in Mexico, I got some duty free liquor, and uh, I need to bring that in. I got to tell you, man, uh, you're really pushing the limits on forgot. Yeah, uh, <laughs> edging ever closer into keeping. Yeah, I've uh, I've been holding on to this duty free liquor for about three weeks now, but it's going to be here, and it's going to get crazy at this podcast. From what you told me, uh, this week's interview. Could have really used some boots. It, it was uh, uh, me and, and Jay Caspian Kang, who I was talking to, were in a self-deprecation contest, which I think he defeated me in. Um, but he's a real uh, interesting guy. And uh, yeah, actually, I, I think it was one of my favorite people to talk to. I would, I would have a beer with him. <laughs> or an entire bottle of Jameson, which you're not going to share with us. And we got a sponsor this week, uh, Tiny Letter, from the good people at MailChimp. Thanks to them. Here's Aaron and Jay. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm here with Jay Caspian Kang. Welcome, Jay. Hey, how's it going? So, I think I, I first the first story I really like remember seeing of yours was the uh, New York Times Magazine story you did about um, the online gap kids online gambling. Yeah, damn huge, huge money. And um, I think I went back and read some of your earlier stuff before that. And I know that you um, came out of an MFA program. What were you, at what point did you sort of start pushing for a career in, in writing? Um, I'm, I think I wanted to be a novelist. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a cold. From when I was a very young kid, probably yeah. from when I was like 10. And it never occurred to me to do anything else, including doing, being like a journalist, especially not being like an internet content creator, you know, which is sort of what I think I do a lot of now. You're the first person I on the show who's self-described themselves as an internet content creator. Although I call myself not. a content farmer, but I thought that it would be too like it would be too derisive to myself. Like, right maybe on. I should give myself a little more credit, but only but I only did it, you know in private. I'll call myself a content farmer. So prior to prior to becoming a farmer, um, you were. What, what point did you start working on on the novel that you, that you now have out? Oh. um... Well, you know, I th- when I was in the MFA program, I went right after college. Yeah. So I was 23, and then between 23 and about 27, I worked on one book, and, uh, you know, my, my I just didn't really know how to work, and I was very 
What, when you say you didn't know how to work, what like uh, in, in terms of self-discipline, you didn't know how to work? No, I mean, I've worked a lot, but I just didn't know how I was going to get to where I needed to go. Yeah. And so I think if you if I looked at the archives of that first book, there was probably like 2,800 pages or something like that, you know, of like content that was just original content and not even like uh, re-edited content or like stuff like that. Um and there is no way that all that would sort of cohere into one book. And in the end, that's sort of what happened. Like, I just didn't know what to do with it. Um, and then I decided to go to law school, like oh. in 2009, I think. And as I was taking the LSAT, I got really depressed because, you know, I was taking the LSAT. <laughs> and I was like, I wasn't even really doing well. And I, I just remember I like I did really well in LSAT practice exams. And then I went and I took the LSAT in the game section, I had like a meltdown. Yeah. Like literal meltdown where I almost started crying the girl next to me. I had to be like, are you okay? I was like, no, I can't figure this out. Like, this is horrible. Um, and then after that, <clears throat> I gave myself like a, I was like, all right, you're just going to, you know, like you've always wanted to be a fiction writer. You always want to be a novelist. So why don't you take nine months? And, you know, at the time I was collecting unemployment from the state of California yeah, and like I, my unemployment ran out in nine months, so I wrote this novel in nine months, and uh, yeah, and then around that same time, when I was taking breaks from the novel, I just started communicating um, a bit with a guy I know from high school who ran the Free Darko blog. Yeah, um, he was actually like my high school newspaper editor. And, that guy, what's that guy's name? Uh, like Nathaniel Friedman. Oh, Free yeah. Darko himself. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So. He and I went to the same high school, yeah. North Carolina. Um, and the idea of writing on the internet for the first time sort of occurred to me. I don't know why it didn't occur to me before. But, you know, I sort of, I wrote a piece about Jeremy Lin when Jeremy was a junior in college at Harvard. And, you know, I think it was received better than I thought it would be. And I sort of started to feel that like warm glow that everyone feels at some point where like, yeah. the internet is agreeing with you. And then I slowly started doing more, turning out more content for the internet. And and you wrote the you wrote a piece for the morning news, yeah. Um, also about gambling, about yeah. your own gambling addictions. Um, at what what at what point in this trajectory did that piece come out? I was what I wrote that piece. Yeah, I wrote that piece when I was really young. Yeah. Um, I think I wrote it when I was twenty four, twenty five, and um, and I didn't know what to do with it because at the point at that time I really just like you know the idea of a career was sort of silly to me mm-hmm. and I was still like caught up in trying to be like a, a like a more elegant beatnik or something you know yeah. like I didn't I didn't want to I didn't want to like become like a corporate writer what, <laughs> which is ironic how did you how did you support your so between 23 and 27 you were writing a 28,000 page novel and some pieces that you didn't publish. How how are you supporting yourself during this period? I was a teacher at a, at private high schools uh-huh. in California. What um, subject? English. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought I'd do in yeah. my life. Actually, that was like I, I think that was my the most likely thing that that I would have ended up doing with my life. Being a high school English teacher. Being a private private school English teacher. It's 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 uh, it's good and bad. It's yeah. good in that. <clears throat> It doesn't take the psychic toll on you, I think, that teaching yeah. at a public high school does because the kids are going to be fine. 
And at the same time, the fact that it doesn't take like that psychic toll makes you feel like a horrible person, you know, at least it did for me. And that, you know, if you grow up and you have like vaguely Marxist ideas and um, <clears throat> you want to affect the world in certain ways. And here you are like working for like the worst institution in terms of like uh, splitting people up in terms of haves and haves nots at like an impressionable age. And you're teaching them all this sort of stuff that you know that they use to sort of distance themselves from other kids who don't have the same like quality of education and it you just feel like shit doing it you know i think i don't know i felt like shit i'm sure that some people are much better at it and that they've committed themselves to it in a way that makes sense to them but i, I just like i so, always felt shit so at this point of time you were a unpublished private school english teacher with marxist views and a gambling problem <laughs> somewhat marxist views yeah <laughs> were, were were you spending a lot of time gambling during this period yeah, yeah. um Gambling is kind of a California thing. Like Forty I, to fifty hours a week, probably. I'm, I'm from California, and like, yeah, that would be like, uh, you would be like par for people I know from California. But I always meet people in New York who don't know the rules of poker. Well, LA. Are you from LA? I'm from Berkeley. I'm from Berkeley. Yeah, I mean, you know, like in uh, God, what is that town called? The one next to Berkeley, Oakland. on five eighty. Um, Emeryville. Emeryville, yeah. yeah. So in Emeryville, there's a card Oak, room. Oak's card room. The Oak's card room. I spent room. some time there. <laughs> yeah. Um, San Francisco, South San Francisco, and Colma, there's like the lucky chances. Yeah. Um, and in LA, they're everywhere. And yeah. so like... What, uh, so are there, is there... Do you need like a gambling permit to open one of these places? For people, for people who are listening, these are like... I think they kind of really only exist in California. They're, car, they're literally just a big room where you can play cards. And they could be everything from a place with a buffet and to like I've been to ones in, in like Sonoma that are like a like a veterans hall that they occasionally have sandwiches at. Like you just need a <laughs> yeah, yeah. basically you just need a room to have one. It's like yeah. old. People have been playing at the commerce, I think, and at the bicycle casino for generations down there. Um I don't know, it is a lot more part of the lifestyle. I just think there's so many immigrants in LA who come from sort of fatalistic countries. Like, yeah. So like you got a lot of, you know, a lot of people who dealt with a lot of turmoil in their home countries. So you have a lot of Vietnamese, Koreans, you know, and Armenians. Yeah. And Israelis in LA. And they're all like, you know, like the gambling problems within those people are just like horrendous. Right. And so um, those rooms are always full, <laughs> always full, you know, and always sort of split up between racial groups so yeah you know like koreans are thought to be crazy you know thought, like, only so, thought yeah. to be <laughs> yeah, only thought to be so if there's like if there's a table that's slow yeah the people will be like can you just please bring a korean person to you know a korean guy to come play here um i don't know i, I spent like four years in those places in la yeah. in in california and i think i got an education in something yeah. i don't know if it was a particularly great education but you know like it was nice to not I think I was there in part because like I was so resistant to the demographic of people that I had gone to college and graduate school with. And, um, and you know, like I, it just like, it made no sense to me. I was like such a, I, I really hated, um, like I got kicked out of college twice. I really didn't like being in an MFA program. And I think I was just sort of like so aimlessly, aimlessly uh, rebellious that, I was willing to hang out anywhere except around people who, you know, like 
read the New Yorker and sort of like aspired to be writers. So what, what in sort of, while you're working on this novel, you did this piece about your own gambling. Was that, was that the first time you'd written about yourself in a nonfiction sense? No, you know, I, I wrote an essay that we ultimately published on Grantland about Ichiro Suzuki. Yeah. I wrote that like when I was like 22 or something, I think. Have you was... written anything in the last couple of years? Or are you just mining uh, things you <laughs> no, wrote while look, you're unemployed there in was, your 20s? If there was more, I'd be writing. It would be out there. I'll tell you that much. Um, so that was the first real personal essay I wrote. Um, I, you know, I, I, I really like my two heroes in terms of nonfiction are James Baldwin, like Joan Didion, like those are the two people who I go back and read several times a year. They're the two writers who I think, you know, sort of wrote most forcefully about what was happening in the 20th century. Um, and, you know, it's like I try, like those pieces really sort of, I think were really, and maybe even in an embarrassing way, were like very aspirational towards the type of writing that James Baldwin and Joan Didion did about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um you know, uh, and I'd like to do a lot more of that, but it's a little bit hard. Like, um, I feel like I'm caught up in this thing where like, you know, like I said, like you create content for the internet and you have to follow the internet and there's no time for like doing anything that requires any sort of, or even warrants self-reflection, you know, like I don't need to reflect about reading Twitter and like following some you know, like following like something that happens on Twitter or like Harlem Shake videos, like there's no reflection. And yeah. the, the, I mean, like, people do write personal reflections on those things. And, you know, they're always so stupid. And like, it's not, I don't know, I, I guess it's it's just difficult to be a content creator and to write something that's like reflective, I think, in a way that's very sincere and is not sort of this idea that you are going to write something reflective and sincere about something that you know is going to be read a lot because it's been it's what's being discussed right now. Does that I don't is know that, that is sense. the limitation um, how long it takes to do something like that, or is it like have you shifted sort of is your brain no longer? Yeah, I think it's a brain thing. Yeah, yeah, like um, I don't sort of like agonize over things in the same way, and I think that if you're a fiction writer, like that's all you do because like the process is actually just sort of like borderline torturous. Yeah, and you like little things that happen in your life because your entire life consists of sitting by yourself with like no sort of exterior stimulation, um, start to take on like a lot more meaning. So you become more observant. Mm -hmm. Like, um, so like I remember I would just go to the same coffee shop that had no wireless in San Francisco. And after a certain point I could tell that like I was more observant than I had been before. That never happens now. You know, like it's like, I'm like, if anything, like I've become 10% as observant as I was before. And, um, and my brain has become really wired differently, you know, like I can maybe I, and I don't, I, I think it's all sort of, you know, isn't like, that happening to everyone now though? Or, or is there like some other class of people that we don't like, I feel like, um, like that, I don't know anyone who, who is not at least subject to some of that. Gravity. Yeah. I think everybody, but I mean, that's what like Royce White said, right. On our, when he yeah. talked to like Chuck Clusterman on our site, yeah, they're like, <clears throat> It's sort of like a collective mental illness. I thought that was like the most interesting thing he said. Um, I liked his, that his justification for um, why everyone in the NBA it, uh, has like a mood disorder is everyone smokes weed. 
That oh was yeah, like that, yeah. That. <laughs> that was the part I couldn't ride with Royce on. He's so anti weed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was the same thing. I was like, I was like, I was like, like, like wait, on, dude. <laughs> wait, dudes in the NBA smoke weed. <laughs> um, so, so for you, I mean, the internet has brought you a, a lot of new things. Um, you, you're a writer who's um, the internet has brought a, a lot of attention to. Um, what what was sort of the first piece that that got a big response that you did? Um, I feel like, I mean, that morning news story, once morning awards, news piece. Yeah. I still think that's like the, I still think that's like the piece. I don't know. I mean, in tra- terms of traffic numbers, like, you know, like the morning news is never going to get as much traffic as Grantland. Right. How um, did that piece end up at the morning news? I read something from Anthony Doer, who was a professor at Bowdoin, which is where I went to college. And I was in that sort of mind state after having sort of blown the LSAT. That like I just have to like get everything out there that I've written, yeah. So that in five years, if I'm like, like looking for a job as a lawyer and really unhappy, that like I can at least say like I tried to. I wasn't just sort of sitting in paralysis, not sending anything out, the way I had been for like five, six years before, you know. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a feeling I can I very much identify <laughs> with. I, w- I think every writer can. Were you literally not sending anything out that you were writing? Yeah, nothing. Yeah. And, you know, like, I look back on it now. I mean, I, I just, like, I went and talked at Bowdoin last week, and this girl from the college newspaper interviewed me, and she, I, like, she, I sort of started, I went back and I read some of my yeah. <laughs> columns from back then, and I was like, you know, like, um, I don't know. I, I think my writing back then was, like, somehow better. And, like, and even during that period where I was really paralyzed, I felt like my, writing I when I look back and read that stuff like it has a certain like uh there's not that this sort of like uh superstructure placed upon, over it where the person writing it is aware that of how the internet is going to react to what he's writing right and now everything I write even though I try very hard to not have this happen like everything I write is like you know like there's always a sort of chattering on in my head about how the internet is going to react to what I'm writing Interesting. So, um, and I, mean, I, I don't know how to like get rid of that, that sort of constant chatter. Well, I mean, it's interesting to think about in terms of some of the people you cited, cause it's not like, um, Joan Didion was writing in a vacuum or no, anything. No, no, no. She's writing for like a gigantic and, and probably fairly vocal audience, but it is true that at that point in time, like, um, you know, talking about someone's writing involved, uh, writing a letter, that you had to put a stamp on and yeah. drop in the mail, which is like a very different interchange. Do you, do you hear a lot from the people who, who read your stuff on Grantland? Um, yeah. Like through Twitter. Yeah. Um, does it bug you out? No, I've gotten used to it. I guess, I mean, I'm not, I don't say, I don't mean to say any of this to complain about it or say that there's like some sort of death of print journalism yeah. and that we're all going to become like content farmers, but it's very difficult I guess it's just one of these things that I've noticed is that even something as simple as a decision of whether or not to put the actual number of Facebook likes at the bottom of the page and whether to hide that it really changes the way that writers engage with the text yeah. and with writing the piece. And I, I mean, I know this just from my experience as an editor at Grantland, where some of the writers that I had who are, you know, wonderful writers who I think really do write without this stuff in mind, yeah. they would sort of, you, you could see them 
obsessing in the same way that I did about whether or not their number was big enough, you know? And that the idea that that in the end, like where you spent like a lot of time and your piece gets like 430 likes or something like that, you know, which is a good number. But then somebody else just comes along and just slaps something down. And because it's a hot topic, it goes to like 25,000. Right. Like it's, it's a difficult thing to contend with. And I think um, it's, you know, I, if it was up to me, like, I think that we would get rid of all that sort of stuff on Grantland. Like we would stop having visible metrics and, the only reasoning would not be because, uh, you know, we're too like high minded to like sort of participate in that economy, yep. but more because I think it's a better place for writers to have as much of that stripped out of their daily process as possible. What brought you to Grand Line in the first place? I mean, they sort of assembled this kind of uh, Yankee style <laughs> roster of journalists, and I don't really know that much about how that all unfolded, but you got an email one day. They were like, hey, you want to go write for this new ESPN Bill Simmons site? Yeah, um, I had like a very crazy two months. So I went with my girlfriend to uh, Cambodia for like two and a half months in, uh, I think it was 2010, December. And then my novel sold while I was there. And then um, I got, because of the morning news piece, I got some like magazine opportunities all on sort of the same day while I was at Anchor Watt. And then right after that, I got an email from from Bill and asking if I wanted to work on this thing. And I had heard about it because there had been some rumors, you know, because he had already hired Katie Baker yep. and he had already hired Molly um, and Chris Ryan. And, um, you know, like I am of the age and went to a school in New England and I'm interested in sports. You felt like you had been profiled. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I grew up, you know, no, it wasn't that I just grew up like really love, like when I was in college, we, it sounds like a cliche at this point, but we really did print out bills, columns and read them and talk about them. You know, and I unfortunately work with someone who has the same attitude as you. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, it was sort of, it's like mindless blind fanboydom, you know? Yeah, Yeah. And so, uh, I was sort of powerless and I guess, you know, I certainly don't regret the decision. So, um, but yeah, it was like, have you had to, I mean, in terms of working in the site, I know you had done some sports related stuff, but you're doing some pretty like deep, heavy sports journalism. Did you have to sort of educate yourself as a sports journalist? I mean, as a journalist period. Yeah. What was that like? What was that process of becoming a real journalist? Like I'm still going through it. Yeah. My goal for this year was, was like, I didn't, I was like, all right, you have, you know, like, I think uh, I could, I was like, okay, so like the things that you wanted to accomplish when you were a kid, like publish a novel, um, like you did. And like, now it's just about like figuring out how to continue in the public sphere. And I just couldn't like see myself just writing essays um, without any sort of reporting base. So this year I just decided to try and become a better reporter. So all the pieces that I've been doing are all like trying to do some different aspect of reporting that I feel like I need to work on. And that New York times piece you did about, uh, online gambling, you went and followed these, these very young dudes who are yeah. moving millions of dollars in um, in gam in, uh, online gambling sites, which I think are largely gone now. Right. Most yeah. They're coming sites. back this year. They're coming back. So, Let's just take that story, for example. What what was your entry point for that story? How did you get hooked up with them? <laughs> that was my first reporting yeah. uh, assignment ever. Like, I, you know, I didn't 
come up. I didn't have any internships or anything like that. Yeah. And so I think I was mostly going off of what I had seen on TV and in movies. Yeah. And, um, and it just, I, I guess for that piece, it was okay because I didn't really need to ask him any questions because the subject was so, at least to me, interesting on his own. You know, like he um, was a really strange kid. He had very, very complicated ideas about like the actual value of money versus like the actual video value of games, you know. Um, he was really weird about things like, you know, like he was, he lived in Orlando and he was talking about how he only had like six million dollars and that to comfortably buy a house in like Orlando, you need ten million dollars, you know? And I was like, I'm pretty sure Derek Jeter bought a mansion around Orlando for about six million dollars. So I don't know what type of house you live in. Like right now you live in a condo in Orlando and it sucks, you know? So like he had no real concept of money and so and he gave me all this access because, you know, he's just a kid. How did you find how did you find him in the first place? I read a lot of stuff on line and then when that gambling piece came out the one the personal essay yeah. in the morning news a lot of people contacted me a lot of professional poker players contacted me i got a lot of emails from guys who are pretty famous who are just like i've done the same thing like those sort of head games you play with yourself where you just like are screaming at yourself that you're a horrible degenerate and then it becomes funny to you, you know, because yeah. you can't leave and you're just pissing away all your money and you just started giggling to yourself. Like, you know, like I think that's a universal experience for degenerate gamblers. So a lot of the guys, I think, um, somehow found it and, and wrote to me. So through those contacts, I found like all the contact information for Daniel. I mean, is part of you saying at this point, holy shit, I'm doing a story for New York Times magazine. I have no idea what I'm doing. Or are you coming into this with a high level of confidence? No, definitely the former. I, had, I mean, I guess it still all feels very unreal. You know, yeah. like you call somebody if you're working on one of the a piece for them and you say like, you know, oh, I'm calling for like the New York Times. And um, if it felt very unreal to me and, you know, like very quickly, it, you know, I, I came up against the idea that, no, this is actually real. And for this to be real, like you have to really become a better reporter. So like I'm still working through that. I mean, you've sort of talked about the way that moving away from that um, fiction writer's life of going to a coffee shop without wireless to the content farmer life has sort of turned you off to some of your skills of observation. Do you feel like you've picked up other things as a writer along the way? I mean, I'm a lot faster. Yeah. I mean, I used to write between 300, 500 words a day maximum. I don't know. I mean, there are days where I write 4,000 words, you know? Do you have a quota of what you do? Like at Grandland, are you like no, on the no, tether? No, but no. You, you've just, you just, you're just going for it now. I don't know, because it's like, I, I, I think I'm trying to bridge ambition with what I actually want to do. And I think, I don't know if this is true or not, but, you know, in my opinion, if you want to write primarily on the internet and you want to have a big audience and you want to be able to make money in a way that only a very, very few amount of people are making money writing on the internet, you got to be very consistent with your output. Like mm -hmm. People have to be able to come to your website to find you like a couple times a week, you know, especially unless you have a massive audience already that grew up with you. Um, like you've got to be able to like keep, keep it coming. And you know, when I started, I think, uh, Grantland, like I, 
you know, um, that made sense to me. And uh, I think that it was always this internal struggle between that desire and the desire to go back to like my fiction writing process where I felt like I was producing better sentences, but for nobody, you mm-hmm. know, and that, um, I mean, is there anywhere in between there in terms of doing like longer nonfiction features and stuff? I mean, I don't know. I mean, what, you guys like clearly think so, right? Like that there's some sort of medium. I mean, that's certainly, it's interesting that you bring up the idea of being a writer on the internet because I, Everyone's everyone who's writing is basically a writer on the internet yep. now. I mean, even even the most venerable print magazines, really. Like when you look at the numbers, they're internet magazines that happen to produce a small print edition, which yeah. pays for everything. Yeah. But um, there's still a much much larger audience on the internet. So, yeah, I mean, when I when I look at the numbers that are for for hit big big long stories on the internet, I, I, it seems actually like the most in some ways, it's some of the most read content out there. Um, certainly for magazines like, I mean, New Yorker, I think that that Scientology, that Lawrence Wright's piece was like, the, that was our biggest online story ever or whatever. Yeah. That's most people read of any New Yorker story. Um, but Grantland does stuff a lot, like, like like a lot of that. You've done a few sort of bigger feature pieces for, for Grantland. Do you take off from doing the twice a week uh, posts while you're doing these bigger features? Um. I think within internally, um, we just had like one thing that we're working on and one thing that I think everyone on the internet is working on is trying to figure out like where, you know, that medium balance, like you talked about for me personally, um, I want to do those sorts of long reported features. And I think it's just like trying to figure out a way to craft it so that it can be consumed online mm-hmm. without people looking down and being like, Oh my God, this thing is like paginated. So I'm not going to read it. Um, what, what, what interests you as a writer? Like what, what gets you excited in terms of story? What's a story that gets you excited? Uh, like uh, crime, <laughs> crime. Yeah. Uh, crime. And you know, like people acting very irrationally, I guess. You know, like when people, <laughs> which usually goes with crime stories, yeah. um, and sort of these are people who try and exist outside of the law. And so, like, you know, like the Christopher Dorner story in L.A. was like, yeah. I mean, that was riveting. Like, I spent all day sitting in front of the TV for, like, three days for that. Like, you know, like those types of stories. Um stories that are about like people who like try and go rogue and sort of break off from society and do so in these sort of grand ways. Um, you know, like, I mean, the best, the best example of all that are all, you know, almost every single one of the mass shooters last year was this person like that, you know, like somebody who spent a lot of time or who spent a lot of time feeling very alienated from society and being eventually pushed into or feeling that they were pushed into a corner that they couldn't get out of. And that the only way that they could get out of this corner and sort of like actually like say, you know, like give the middle finger to society was to do to go out and shoot a whole bunch of random people. Um, I don't know. Like those, I guess those are stories. You wrote, I mean, you wrote about, you wrote about the Virginia tech shooter, right? Yeah. That was my novel. Right. Well, you, and you, uh, sorry, you wrote about the connection between the, the sort of incidental connection between the Virginia tech shooter and a character in your novel. Yeah. The Virginia Tech thing was about, 
I was just very interested uh, about how my own reaction to Virginia Tech. When it happened, I felt it was like the first time that I really sort of came to grips with, you know, my ethnicity, which is crazy because I was like 20-something, you know, but not in a way that was like sort of collegiate or or like appreciative, you know, or even like some guy. I grew up in North Carolina. There were plenty of racist people yeah. who would make me aware that I was not white. But, you know, like that's like a that's like not visceral. Like you get pissed off and you're just like, fuck you. And maybe you feel bad a little bit. But like, you know, when Virginia Tech happened, like it was like the first real like, oh, shit. Like I am um, like this is different. Like this is somehow molding my identity as like a Korean dude a lot differently. And, you know, like it, it's making me feel all these sorts of wonder, all this shit about my own family, my own like people growing up. And it sort of bonds, made me feel bonded with other Korean dudes who have like bad tempers or something like that in a way that it really shouldn't have, but still did, you know? Um, and so I, yeah, I wanted to write a novel sort of out of that, that sense. And I don't know, I think I still write, you know, I always want to write about these school shootings when they happen, but it, it's tough. But I find it interesting. One thing you said, which is that the internet has made you more self-aware and more, concerned about people's reactions to your writing, but it almost seems like a, a bit of a sort of a paradox because your writing is by nature, not autobiographical is not the right word, but your writing is a lot about, you've written a lot about, um, uh, Lynn, you've written a lot, you've written about Ichiro, you write about Asian American stuff and you yeah. write about sort of gambling things that really cross the paths of your own life. Do you sort of do you draw a distinction between that kind of self-awareness and the self-awareness that the internet promotes? Yeah, definitely. They're they're not the same thing. Yeah. Um I don't know if I would call myself self-aware for writing those pieces. Um but I think that there's like a prettier version of navel gazing. Yeah. And I think that I was probably doing that like at my best, you know, like I I still think that the gambling essay I wrote for Rosecrans at the morning news prize, I think it's still like the thing I'm proudest of that's in print. Like, um, and, and that Ichiro essay, I still think is the best thing I've written for Grantland. And so it's, you know, interestingly enough, both of those things were written way before I ever considered an internet writing career. Yeah. Well, they're also, th they're things that they're not self-aware. They're things that, um, you need a certain knowledge to write. You can't write that piece about gambling without having gambled yeah, a lot yeah, yourself. Yeah. They're yeah. not <laughs> detached and they're not reported in that way. Are you, do you think about trying, I mean, are you out of that kind of material now or like, yeah. uh, is, that, <laughs> is that what's happening? I'm out. <laughs> tapped out. I'm tapped out. I mean, I spent so much time when I was a kid gambling and you know, like, doing drugs, running around. Yeah. But I didn't do it in an interesting way, enough way where it could like be eons of material, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, I think at some point I'll write a essay about going to raves when I was in college. Cause I went to a lot of raves, but then I read that Zadie Smith piece about going to a rave and I was like, Oh my God, she <laughs> beat me to it. You know, like I've got, I had a similar bathroom drug experience that she had, you know, and I was like, I can't write. And I had always wanted to write about it. And I had even sketched it out and written some of the sentences. And then I read that. I was like, Oh, you know, she's still like, I can't do the raves anymore. So what am I going to do? Um, as that, you know, people know, like writing is like more than a full-time job. I think 
that's why I really appreciate being able to go out and do these reported pieces because they give me experiences that I wouldn't have if I was sitting at home. Like when I'm sitting at home and sort of churning content, like I feel like I really don't like this sort of daily process of my life, which is a lot of Googling and a lot of like Twitter yeah. and a lot of sort of like obsessing over like, you know, metrics of, of success. Let's talk about that because you're an editor of Grantland. So you're also, I assume, involved in commissioning other pieces. I was, that, yeah. yeah. Oh, you're, oh, you're not anymore, though. I think by title I'm still, but like uh, I am now more focused on writing um, features. So I don't go in the office as much. But at a certain point, you were responsible. At the beginning, for yeah. Some was, of the editorial it was, voice. It was me and Lane Brown and Dan Fearman. It was just three people. Yeah. yeah. So there's this kind of sensibility to Grantland that's, um, I would say, sort of at the intersection of pop culture, sports, and this unnamed third realm that I would call, like, shit the internet likes. Yeah. Um, and that sort of falls under the pop culture, but it's not necessarily traditional pop culture. It's internet. It's it, it's pop culture of of today. Which so you mean like different. reposting really popular memes and stuff? Yeah, yeah. and and commenting on them, yeah. and talking about internet videos and that kind of stuff. And um, it's a very it's a very developed voice um, that goes into it. But from what you're saying, it seems like not necessarily like the Jay Kang voice exactly. It's like a external voice to you when you look at writers like. Bill Simmons and like Chuck Klosterman who've developed this very sort of elaborate pop culture vocabulary. Is that, is that something that you sort of attracted to as a writer yourself or you're trying to, to get away from? Um, I'll just put it this way. Like until I started working at Grandland, I had never once watched the Oscars. Yeah. Never once, you know, and the Grammys, like I, I like, I really didn't know what the great, like I just thought like at some point somebody gives like, you know, Nelly Furtado award, I guess. Yeah. The, I was just really a dinosaur about music. Like I just liked all the rap music I grew up with in the nineties and never developed musical taste past that. I, I, yeah, you know, I, I, I really respect what those guys do. Yeah. And I understand that it is like a, it's like this massive ability to process all this information, you know, like, so like I've never met, people in my life honestly who are better at processing things than Chuck and Bill like they just are you know things go in um and then you know like there's just sort of like literate thing that comes out I I personally just can't do that like I did it I, I wrote something for Corey on the all like the best divas of all time that was sort of the piece that got me hired at Grantland and I think it was one of the piece that sort of you know, like it did well there and, yeah. and like it was a piece that, and that was a piece that sort of convinced me that I should keep writing on the internet because I thought it was funny how, how people reacted well to it. And, and I, you know, for the first time I felt like very loved on the internet. So I, I, I <laughs> why can't you just accept the love of the internet, Jay? It's not that it's just that like that thing took me like four weeks to write, you know, <laughs> and that's way too long for like a normal like I, you know, like I think I could do that. Like I could sort of disappear for a long time, and come out with one thing every few months that did process some sort of form of pop culture in that sort of way. But um, 
I can't do the daily stuff that that happens. Like I don't think I could write a weekly television col- column in the way that Andy does. Yeah, you know, because it's not because I don't watch TV. I watch a ton of TV, but I just don't have the gift of processing it into like sort of a consumable and interesting point. You know, like for me, it's just like, oh, that person's ugly, or like I hate that guy, or like you know, like that would be my TV column. Like, well, a lot of that, a lot of that writing, I think, tries to. Um put the character above all, right? It's a, it's a, it's a form of sports writing that is not as concerned with who is going to win championships as it is with the personalities and characters and, and sort of putting, putting a, uh, a pop star and an athlete sort of in the same, treating them the same, putting them in the same article on this, in the same sort of level. And it seems to me that in your writing and the people that you chose to profile, um, you're sort of on the periphery of sports, but you pick people like a um, gambling star who's the opposite of a personality, the opposite of a character that you can easily identify with. They're the they're fringe characters, really. Yeah, it's an access question, right? Like yeah. um, writing NBA profiles, NFL profiles are almost impossible because anywhere you go, there's going to be a PR guy sitting with you. You get like 10 minutes, you know? Yeah. Um, I wrote like a lot of... I wrote these sort of, and, and to deal with that problem last year, I wrote a lot of these sort of half essay, half profile pieces. Um, I Like we call them person of interest. So I would go to the Bay Area and I would spend 10 minutes with Kwame Brown. Yeah. And I'll get like four quotes from Kwame Brown and then I have to craft an essay around it. And the four quotes were just like boilerplate, you know? Yeah, I do um, it for God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, That's interesting though, because there's a lot of, I mean, you're in some ways part of uh, you, you're, you're part of one of the bigger um, if you trace it up to the parent company, one yeah. of the bigger sports outfits in the world. I'm sure there's like a lot of um, young aspiring sports writers listening, maybe um, <laughs> who, you know, who imagine that there is some sort of a greater opportunity, but even at your level, you're only getting 10 minutes with Kwame Brown. Um, For me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure if, I mean, I don't know if anyone would get more than, a half hour with Kwame Brown. Yeah. Which is why in recent months or like this past year, I've really started doing boxing because mm-hmm. boxing is, inst- is like access all the time, you know, like, and the guys don't have publicists and they're just sort of, they're all like thoroughly entertaining people. You know, all of them came from like every single one of them came from nothing, you know, and they're all living this very, very weird life where they have just become famous they still don't really have any money, but you know, like here's a reporter from ESPN Grantland who wants to spend two days with them and they all say yes, you know? So like, um, would you say that your ideal profile subject is anyone who like lives in a shitty condo with a bunch of their friends? Yeah, but definitely, definitely. And has somehow sort of crafted a persona for, or like some sort of incalculable and yet like very sort of, uh, anonymous success for them like yeah. daniel like i remember the kid who played online poker i sat next to him and there was a hand i think he lost like eight hundred thousand dollars i was like oh my god <laughs> he didn't blink you know i just find like those types of scenes you can't get i don't think if you if you spend it with really famous professional athletes i thought Wright's piece on michael jordan at 50 was pretty good yeah i'm not pretty good i thought it was very very good and I, you know it was very, very good in part because Wright, you know, I think is like a very, very good reporter. But I also think that it was like a level of access that was totally unexpected, right? So, that I would the whole I, that's how the whole time I was reading, I was like, who, who, who let you do this? <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, you know, like that's one of the things I think I've been learning is uh, sometimes if you just sit there, they forget that you're there. Yeah. And then so they forget to like get rid of you, you know. I mean, I'm like a very, I'm very quiet and I try not to ask them a lot of questions. Um, I don't know if that's the right approach or not, but it's an approach that works for me. And I have, I generally just go in and I have like six to 10 questions that I want to ask them, but they're more like broad subject area types of things. And, and I, I just generally just observe because I, I just feel like because I'm a fiction writer, you know, like the story will tell itself through the narrative of like the person's movement throughout their daily life. Right. So with Daniel and that times piece, it was because, you know, like his daily life was just sitting in front of a computer and then while like these numbers went way up and way down and that was i felt like showing that through scene was more interesting than just asking him so what's it feel like to lose eight hundred thousand dollars because you know he's just gonna be like i don't know like you know yeah. um so i try and do that with all the pieces i guess and and i try not to rely on like quotes ever because i just think that people get really uncomfortable when you like shove a recorder in their face and ask them a bunch of questions but again like you know this is something i'm really really learning for the first time now and so i'm sure there are some reporters out there who have better strategies than i do would you are you going to write another novel yeah yeah Yeah. soon actually yeah um yeah i've got like an idea and i don't uh i think i'm in a good place now because with with writing fiction i haven't written a word of fiction in two years and before i used to do it every day and um I always thought I would come back to it, but then over the past six months, I started to become really afraid that I would never come back to it and that, um, that I would, you know, because it's, you know, the way that it is, you just get a much more reliable paycheck and a much more reliable readership and response and you feel much more relevant doing journalism or even like trolling Beyonce, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I just could never think I was like, all right, when I get time, I'm going to write a novel. When I get time, I'm going to write, I'm going to write a novel. And it dawned on me that, like, I really just had to make time and not, you know, like, uh, I still don't know how I'm going to do that. But pretty soon I think I'm going to figure out a way to make time. I, mean, I think some people actually be interested in this. Like, what's the what's your day to day life like as an Internet content farmer? Give me a day oh, in your life. Man. I mean, when it was busy. Yeah. Like when I was like editing posts and yeah. writing posts. Yeah. I would get up at like 530 because it's West Coast. You have to post by nine. I would start editing content then. Um, you know, like at like 6 a.m. on good days when I was like on top of stuff, I would send it off to like the copy desk. And then you just like sit doing that from 5.30, like 10.30. And then around 10.30, like you would take a short break. And then, you know, by that point, you probably like responded to like 40, 50 emails. And then we would drive into the office and all meet in the office and do the same thing in the office to like three and then at three o'clock on the West Coast, our day was over. And then we would have like meetings to sort of plan the next content. And then you go home around like seven. But that was like that was like when we had a full staff and like workload was reasonable. At the very beginning, um, when it was just me, Lane, and Dan, and this kid Robert Mays, who was like sort of our editorial assistant, we called him like our do everything guy. And Bill, you know, like we work. I don't know, like 16 hours in an office down in downtown LA, like 20 hours sometimes, you know, like it was just, it was an insane amount of work. Was that gratifying in any way? It was exciting. Yeah. It was really exciting. I think like starting a, 
website even i guess a cynical person would be like of course the starting website with those writers and espn's yeah. money yeah like, it, it's gonna be like it's gonna work but it, you know like the excitement you feel is not it's not like num- you're not like because you don't get paid so it's not like oh man all this traffic is coming in yeah like i'm making money it's, it's just exciting to see something sort of come into creation and people react to it um positive negative it was yeah it was great like i would I, I think like working on a small team uh, like very passionately and hard for a project that you believe in is, is, you know, like, I don't know. I, I can't think of a better way to spend my time. Seems like a good note to end on. Jay Kang. Thank you very much. Jay Caspian Kang. No, 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 you can just go to Jay Kang. It's okay. Jay, Jay Caspian Kang. Thank you very much for coming in on uh, short notice while you're out reporting on your trip. Um, we'll be here uh, next week. The editor was Lauren Kirchner. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff. And Max Linsky, our sponsor this week is Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. I will see you soon. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.